Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new sermon series, Acts, Church on the Move. In this series, we follow the expansion of the early church. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the church experience tremendous growth through the power of God and staying faithfully committed to the Word and community. As we move through really a familiar passage, now up until this time, uh, what we have seen happening within the early church is of course the main theme. If you were to pull a theme out of the first eight chapters, it would be the idea of persecution, first of all. And then second of all, I think you would say it's the advancement of the gospel. And that's what we've noticed. We've seen it uh, given to the church there at Jerusalem. And then as persecution came, people then began to scatter, both men and women all around the known world at that time. Because of the persecution, they went everywhere sharing their faith. And really, we saw some amazing, amazing things start to happen. If you remember back to the call of Philip and how call up, uh, call, well, Philip, you know, last week I had trouble with my words. I was like, this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fine. Not a great start. Uh, But if you remember, Philip was called to Samaria and and he went up there and he began to preach and teach and many people were saved. There was great joy that came to that city. And then we saw last week how Philip was led then by God to go to a desert place to meet a man from Ethiopia who was uh, on a, a journey, who was searching for the Lord and how God specifically sent Philip to reach that man. He turned it uh, in, in faith to Jesus Christ. And uh, it's just been an amazing thing to see. But I want to step back this morning as our passage takes us at least for a moment to the city of Jerusalem again. And I want to remember what it was like in Jerusalem. Remember, Man, the gospel's been going out. It's been in Judea, it's in Samaria. Great things are happening. And I guarantee you news of what was happening in Samaria made its way back to Jerusalem. Now you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the people that were still there. Remember, this is where the explosion of the church happened. I mean, this was ground zero for the gospel going out. But now so many people had left the city because of persecution. It really would have been a bit of a discouraging place to be, don't you think? The challenges uh, that would have faced there where all around you there's persecution and yet at the same time you're hearing good reports coming back from all these other regions how God is at work and God is doing great things. And I think it was sort of a mixture of sadness. Man, it's difficult here, but also joy for what was happening everywhere else. And the other thing I want you to notice about the church in Jerusalem is that though they would have been joyful and excited about what was happening, at the same time in the back of their minds there always was this overriding thought, and you probably understand what it's like to have a thought that just sort of stays with you. They had this overriding thought that at any moment, a guy by the name of Saul and his goons might show up at your house intent on persecuting you. We know he was capable of murder. We know he was capable of imprisoning people. Acts chapter 8 verse number 3 told us that he was bringing havoc to the local church And so even though the people that were still there, the believers that were there were maybe in secret a little bit, they would have uh, at some point thought in the back of their mind, okay, when is this going to happen? When is he going to show up and come to my door? Imagine yourself in those shoes. I think one of the better ways we can relate to that is by remembering back what it was like in elementary school and there was that bully in your school. Now, if you're right now and you're like, I never had a bully in school, guess what? You're probably that bully, just so you know, okay? (laughs) You were probably that person. But if you think, okay, there, I got an amen out of that one. But if you remember what it's like, you know, maybe have someone who picked on you. Now, I was always the biggest kid in school, and, and by that came some 
privileges, such as people didn't pick on me much, but there was always that little guy with the small man syndrome who was ready to take me down at all costs. And, and so I always had that. And, and I remember you would try to avoid people. And, and uh, you might remember, maybe some of you remember it more than others, how you would avoid certain people, go down a certain hallway or stay away from a certain area of the school because you knew that person would be there. And, and, uh, or maybe now, maybe it's a coworker that you're avoiding and you try to make sure like if they get up and go to get a drink or go to the coffee, you're like, okay, I'm going to wait 20 minutes and then I'll go make sure I don't have to run into them. Uh, but you're always maybe trying to avoid somebody. Hopefully spouses, you're not doing that in your own home. You're not trying to avoid each other. But you know what it's like, I think we all can relate to that idea of just in the back of your mind, okay, when, am I, when is this going to happen to me? When am I going to have to go through that again? And maybe for some of you, it's just a, a, a difficult uh, relationship or maybe uh, just in your own mind, a battle that you fight in your own mind. And you're like, oh man, I'm going to have to go through that again. I'm going to have to walk through that again. And I want you to imagine that's what it would have been like for the early church in Jerusalem. Always wondering, when is Saul, this guy who carries the authority of, of, of the Jewish leaders to put me into prison simply for being a Christian? Imagine that in the back of their minds. And, and Saul certainly was intent on continuing the persecution and he was doing everything that he could to destroy the Christian church. And I want you to see that first of all this, uh, this morning. And I want to just look briefly in verses one and two of Acts chapter nine. And the first point uh, today in my notes is that I want you to see Saul's commitment to persecution. Saul. Saul of Tarsus, this guy was committed to persecution. And so this is the mindset there in Jerusalem. Now verses one through two kind of reminds us of what had already been said, but it takes it to a whole nother level where it says, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. That's a little intense, just a little bit, right? I mean, this guy, he was, it was like part of who he was, the way that he talked, he was constantly threatening and was talking about slaughtering people. I mean, this is, this is an intense mentality. And what were his threatenings and slaughter against? It was against the disciples of the Lord. So this is where he was specifically targeting these Christians. And it was part of who he was. He was intent to do anything he could to destroy them. But look what he did here at the end of verse 1. It says that he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of, now this is interesting, this way, that's what they called them, the people of the way, this way. If he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So we see a bit of a shift taking place here in the persecution, uh, sort of a change of focus for Saul and what he was trying to do. Now you might say, why did Saul hate the Christians so much? You ever wonder that? You ever say that? Like, why do you hate me so much? Maybe you've said that to somebody. Or what in the world? Why do you feel this way uh, about other people or about a certain person? I want to explain to you a little bit as to why Saul was so adamant against uh, against the, the Christians. Now remember, Saul was a smart guy. Later on, he describes his education for us. He would have been far greater educated than most any of us in the room today. He would have known exactly what he was talking about. And he came to this conclusion that there could be no coexistence between militant Judaism and militant Christianity. He had come to that conclusion on his own. Now, he had a teacher by the name of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was somebody who would have taught him the idea of, of tolerance in some regard. He would have taught him about moderation but to Saul, there was absolutely no compatibility between the two faiths. Because to him, either Judaism was right and Christianity was totally false, or Christianity was right, which would then make Judaism obsolete. So you see the, the, the struggle that he's in right here. He said it's got to be one or the other. They cannot both equally be true. And so he concluded from his own point of view that Christ then was a blasphemer 
And that meant that Christianity then was a cult. You say, well, how did he come to that, how did he come to that result? Well, he knew the Old Testament law. He understood what it had said. And so here's what I want you to, to, to sort of walk along with me for a moment to get to the conclusion that Saul had come to. See, if you read the Old Testament law, he would have been keenly aware and noticing the fact that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. And not only had Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but Jesus was also claiming that he was the Son of God. Now, to a, a, a Jew, to hear somebody make that claim, their ears would have perked up immediately. Their little antennas, like, okay, what's going on here? Now, there had been some before that had claimed that, but it had just faded away. Somebody even had some followers, three and four and 500 followers, because they claimed to be the Son of God. But once they had died, that it all faded away. And so now here we are, Jesus of Nazareth had claimed that he was the Son of God, now he was dead, but his followers are expanding at a rapid rate. So for this man who was so trained in the Jewish law, he knew that he had claimed to be the son of God, but at the same time, what he knew to be true is that he had died on a Roman cross. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament law, it tells us in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, and it's speaking specifically about a criminal, it says that a person who is hung on a tree, is cursed of God. It specifically says that. He relates that later on in Galatians. So if somebody is uh, hung on a tree, dies on a tree, they are cursed then of God. And so for Saul, he would have said, okay, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, which is the blessed son of God. But then at the same time, we know that he was hung on a tree, he was crucified, which means he was cursed of God. So then in no way could he have been the son of God. I'm trying to, we're trying to get in the mind of Saul here. So let me, are you, are you with me? <laughs> so this is his, th his thought process. He's saying he claimed to be the son of God, but the law says very clearly that if he's hung on a tree, then he must be a blasphemer then. And therefore, because he's a blasphemer, then it's a cult and those that were devoted to his worship must be stopped at all costs because it was heresy. And that would have been the reasoning behind Saul's intense persecution. It was the thing that consumed him Completely consumed his life. You ever have something consume you before? Peanut butter chocolate ice cream, right? Or I don't know. That, lately that's been on my mind. Just so you know, somebody gave us some and I had a little bit and it's like, why? <laughs> why did I have a little bit? Now I need more. But you know, you have an all-consuming thought. For him, his whole consuming thought is I have to destroy these people. I have to, because it cannot, it is not compatible. And in his mind, you have to think, they are leading my Jewish brothers and sisters away from the truth. That's in his mindset. And so with the power behind him of the government, he then is doing everything that he can and he is intent on persecuting these people. But what we see in verses one and verse number two is that now it's taking him outside of Jerusalem. Up until this point, everything had been in Jerusalem. But now what we see is the persecution spreading out to the Roman-controlled territory, and specifically, he talks about the city of Damascus. Now, this will help us sort of understand where Damascus was. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, of course, and Galilee, that was all under Roman occupation. But Damascus was up in Syrian-controlled land, and so it actually was not under the control of the Roman Empire. But what we see here is Saul coming to the high priest there in Jerusalem, and what he asked for was extradition letters. He said, I need you to give me the authority to go up to Damascus. Now you say, well, how politically would this have all worked out? Well, the people in Syria would have gladly 
done anything if it meant it was appeasing the Roman-occupied Jewish uh, people. Just they, they wanted to maintain their own country, right? So they don't want to do anything to mess up. So if a guy came and said, hey, I need to pull some people out, some Jews that are here in Damascus, it wouldn't have been a problem at all. But he needed the authority of the high priest to go to the synagogue in Damascus, which then would have given him the authority. Because remember, at this point, people were still gathering at the synagogues to worship the Lord. So he gets these letters and he decides to go up there and he's going to forcibly remove these Jewish believers from Damascus. That's so interesting to me that we don't see the other religious leaders doing this at all. It seems like this is completely driven by Saul. I mean, this was his baby, if you want to call it that. I am sure that some said, dude, just take it easy. Most of them have left Jerusalem. You know, they're not, in the, they're not in the temple anymore. They're not being too much of a problem. Just let it go. And he's like, no way. I heard there's some in Damascus, and now I got to go, and I got to take care of this. And so he starts out on a 200-kilometer journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. Every step that he's taken is bringing him closer to persecuting the believers that were there. But what we're going to see next is God intervening in his life in an amazing way. Now, for some of you, you're like, I know where we're going with this. You've heard the passage before, and guess what? It's the same as what you've heard before. But it's some really good, powerful truths that we need to be reminded of as a Christian. And so, first of all, we see his commitment to persecution. But secondly, this morning, I want you to see a confrontation of power. There was his commitment to persecution. He is on his way, but now we see a confrontation of power, most well known as the conversion of Saul. Now, the book of Philippians, if you want to go take a look at it at some point, deals with the theological, the philosophical, and the psychological aspects of what is about to take place. But Acts chapter 9, what we're going to read here, just gives us the details of the Damascus Road experience. And so we'll begin in verse number 3 through 4. It says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So he's right at the end of his journey. Maybe he's 195 kilometers into his journey. He's 5K away. He knows that he's getting close. And look what happens. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. So this is not an ordinary thing. This is a, uh, this is a divine thing that is taking place. This light shines round about him from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now I want you to notice he said, why are you persecuting me? We're going to touch on that in just a moment here. So Saul's at the end of his journey, and he founds himself just lit up. I don't know how many of you have ever had a police officer shine their flashlight in your face. Hopefully not too many of you. Maybe a few of you. Uh, but this was like a spotlight around him. It says that it shone all the way around him, a light all the way around him. And it says that he found himself face to face. Well, actually, it says face to dirt. He got knocked right off of his donkey. I'm sure he was riding something. He's in the dirt, and he came close, this close, to Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, how do we know that it's Jesus exactly? Well, it's going to say that in just a moment. Uh, but secondly, Paul, who later Saul became Paul. And by the way, if I say Paul and I mean Saul, you understand his name was Saul. Later on, he became Paul. That's just too close. It's like my daughters, Linla and Linda. It's just too close, you know. <laughs> but uh, this is Saul and Paul. So Saul at this time, uh, later on, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 1, he says, am, not, uh, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? So uh, actually a requirement to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is that you actually saw him face to face. And so this is his experience. We know that he saw him. But God stopped him here in his tracks with this light. He falls to the ground, and then he hears the voice of Jesus Christ. Now, 
again, you have to put yourself in his, his shoes. If you've ever been in a position where you are headed towards conflict, you know what it's like in your soul. You know, if you maybe got to talk to somebody or, or, or your, your boss wants to talk to you and you're like, okay, this probably isn't going to be great. You know that anxiety that gets in you? Imagine this guy's like, I'm going to go kill some Christians. <laughs> I mean, he would have been like fired up, pumped up. I'm sure he's thinking about all the arguments he's going to use, what he's going to say to the, uh, to the priest there, how I'm going to, okay, he's got his people that are with him. For sure, he would have had soldiers with him. Okay, do we have enough handcuffs, guys? Yes, he got enough clubs. Yes, uh, you know, he got all the spears. He got everything. He's thinking we're almost to Damascus. We're just going to roll into town and we're going to start arresting Christians. And he's all fired up and then he's flat on his face and a light from heaven and Jesus says why are you persecuting me you think a few thoughts would have been swirling around in his head a little bit (laughs) I mean just totally confronted but then we see in verse number five what he says to him and he says who art, art thou Lord now he's already noticing that this is something that is divine because he says Lord to him he says who are you Lord and the Lord said I am, say it with me, Jesus. Man, I am Jesus. This is the resurrected Lord. He says, I am Jesus. Now, he calls him Lord, okay, divinity. Jesus, son of God. You're seeing, we're seeing some things that he had or was so against and he's being confronted with it. He's being confronted with the truth that Jesus Christ is God. And he says, There verse 5, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And then he says this funny phrase. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now I'll talk about that in a second here. You say, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) Now think about Saul again for a moment. I want to really try to examine who he was. You got to remember, Saul, he thought that he was serving God by persecuting these blasphemers. He gen- and I believe that. I believe that in his heart of hearts, he genuinely thought he was serving the Lord by persecuting these blasphemers. But in fact, what he's about to be confronted with is that rather than serving God, he's actually opposing God. (laughs) And that's what he's being confronted with here. And now Jesus is revealed to him as the way. And as he says to him, he says, why are you persecuting me? And in his mind, while he's laying there in the dirt, he's thinking, I'm not persecuting you, God. And maybe he's thinking that. This is God speaking to him. He says, I'm not persecuting you, God. I'm persecuting these Christians. Wait a second. There's got to be some thinking that's happening. This guy is not a, this guy, this guy is smart. So think about all of these thoughts going through his mind all at the same time. He's like, okay, so if I'm persecuting Christians, but you're saying you're persecuting me, so persecuting a Christian means I'm persecuting God. Wait a minute. Now to us, to us as New Testament Christians, we look at it and we're like, oh, I totally get it, right? I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. We're, we are one. So you persecute me, you're persecuting, you're persecuting Christ. But for him, it would have been just a, 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 a moment of realization that he never would have expected to walk through. And so imagine as he's laying there, everything that he's been taught, everything that he believed was proving to be wrong and it was being proved to him right there as he's laying in the dirt of this road that he was persecuting the Messiah of Israel, the son of David, the son of God. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be confronted by God in this way and then have the wave of everything that he'd been doing, what he had committed his life to, just washing over him. Man, think of all those people that he had violently taken off to prison. I think immediately Stephen would have come to his mind, don't you think? I stood there approving of his death and I held the coats of those that were stoning him to death. 
all of this would have just flooded over him. The, 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 the way that he had gone after these people, the way that he had spread and split up the church there in Jerusalem, but now here he was face down in the dust with Jesus himself revealing himself to Saul at that moment. And then Jesus says it's hard to kick against the pricks. And you're like, what? <laughs> now to Saul, it would have made a lot of sense. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense. But the idea of it is that when they would have an ox that would be pulling a cart or plowing a field, they would often have a stick, a long stick, with a sharp metal point on the end. Apparently oxen are stubborn. And so they would take that stick and they would <laughs> give him a shot in the leg or in the rear end or something to get him moving. But sometimes when an ox was really stubborn, it would, it would kick back. That's how they do it, I think, is like that. Huh? You know, in my, yeah, I have a lot of uh, agricultural experience. He's kicking there. But, but you got to think about it. And, the, and the, the picture that's given to us is that it doesn't matter if an ox is kicking. In fact, the more he kicks, the more he's going to injure himself. Because I, I know if it was me, I'm just going to be like, all right, kick away, man. I'm going to jab you. It's going to hurt even more the more that he kicks. And, and the idea here is that, and this is what I believe, is that something was already going on in his heart. There was already some conviction that was taking place. I think there was more going on inside than maybe we think. It could be that he was struggling with thoughts about these people that he was persecuting. It could be that he laid awake at night thinking about Stephen and all of that. Maybe even, I, I was thinking this, maybe his fierceness against Christians was an effort to stamp out anything that reminded him of his actions. Never underestimate the power of conviction. I, I was thinking of it in my, own, in my own context, in my own life. You know, I found in my own life that sometimes when I make decisions that hurt other people, sometimes when I make decisions that affect my testimony for the Lord, when I have a wrong attitude towards my children or to my spouse, if I find myself sinking into sinful habits or sinful thought processes, often it's because, and I want you to miss out on this, often it's because I am rebelling against the conviction of God. God is speaking to me about something and in my own rebellion against the Lord, against something that he's showing me through his word or just through conviction. You know how the Lord convicts you of things. By the way, God does convict us of things. <laughs> he convicts you he, through his Holy Spirit. He'll convict you of, of lifestyle choices. He'll convict you of decisions that you make. And sometimes in my conviction and in my rebellion against God, I will then sin in order to kind of show my rebellion against that. It's a weird way that our minds and hearts work, isn't it? You th man, I wish that when we got saved, it was just, we we're all good from that point on, but we're still sinful flesh. And often that's what happens. And I think, really, I, I believe that this is going on in, in Saul's life. He was struggling with some conviction already. That's why Jesus says, hey, man, stop kicking against it. Stop kicking. He had all of the evidence that he needed to see. He saw Stephen in a pit being stoned, praying <laughs> that God would not hold that sin against those people. He, I don't know if he was there when Jesus was crucified, but I'm sure he heard all about it. And I believe he was resisting it, but in his resistance, and, and, and that would have been in his heart, the conviction in his heart, but in his head, he's still stuck on the law. He's still stuck on what he'd been taught. He's still stuck on what are my, what are my professors gonna say? What are the people that taught me this? This is how I was raised. I, I, can't, I can't think about this. I can't think that that could possibly be true. By the way, there are people all throughout our city who are living like that right now that have been confronted in some way that God has revealed himself to some way and they're resisting it and they're trying to push it away and they're trying to resist it. But listen, 
You're miserable in that resistance. You're kicking against the goad. You're kicking against that, uh, that, that conviction that is in your life. To me, as we come to verse number six, you can almost hear the shake in his voice, can't you? <laughs> He's laying there in the ground and he trembling and astonished. That means he was just flabbergasted. <laughs> He's like, what is happening? Today we say, you know, like, what is going on here? He said this, this is so great. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What would you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, this is very simple. Arise, go into the city, <laughs> and it'll be told thee what you should do. <laughs> Don't you like that? Arise, go to the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Do you notice the change there all of a sudden? In a moment, there's a change. Once the determined enemy of Christ, now trembling, wanting to know God's will for him. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? Now, I, I, you can think what you want, but I really do believe this was the moment that Saul placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I believe this is his moment of salvation at this point. And the reason I believe that is because what else in this world besides faith in Jesus or in God can change a person that quickly? What else but the power of God in a person's life can change us from the enemy of God actively resisting God to now saying, Lord, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do? That's only the power of God. You know, in this room, that testimony is huge right now. And I got to tell you guys, many of you, you understand what it's like, how the power of God can change you from a person who desires drugs, we'll just put it out there, that now you are clean. That's the power of God in your life. There's people in here that were once very dependent upon alcohol, but now you're dependent upon Christ. There are many of you that struggled so much with impurity in your thoughts and impurity in your actions, but through the grace of God and through his power, he's made you clean and pure and holy. Some of you have been through a great abusive relationships and a, a history of abuse but through the power of God, you now are healthy in your relationships. Doesn't mean that you don't struggle, but you are healthy again and you're able to move forward. You're able to trust. Some of you, uh, the, your salvation took you from great rebellion to submission to God's will. Others of you took you from a place of just not caring about anyone else, not caring about your influence, not caring about your testimony. And through the grace of God, now you do care about your influence. You do care about your testimony to those around you. And you want to make a difference. For all of us, of course, it's the power of God that takes us from being a sinner to being saved. Made new and on our way to heaven. Man, church, what a transformation that took place here on this road. And the great thing is, is that that same transformation can take place in the life of somebody today. That's what I love. That same amazing transformation we see here in Saul. And it happens when a person repents of their sin, humbles themselves before the Lord. See, that's what we see here in, in Saul, right? He saw the truth, the light. They need to see the light. They need to see the truth. And then he proclaimed Jesus as Lord and he humbled himself then before him. Well, the story continues in verse seven. It says, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So they heard something later on in Acts 22, which Acts 22 is Paul recounting this situation. There's a few other details in there. Um, uh, he, he, says, uh, he says there in, in Acts chapter uh, number 22, uh, it talks about how they, they heard, but they couldn't understand. They didn't really know what was, what was going on there. And uh, in uh, verse number seven, did you guys get it? There we go. Verse seven through nine. Uh, they're spe speechless, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. So he was actually blind. He was down in the dirt with his eyes closed, <laughs> you know, from, in front of the Lord. He woke up, or he got up, and, uh, and his eyes were open, but he saw no man. And they led him, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, 
and neither did eat nor drink. I think you could say that his life was turned upside down, don't you? Completely. The man who was once so powerful that he brought terror to thousands of disciples throughout Jerusalem was now so crippled and disabled that they had to lead him by the hand into the city. You got to think with all the turmoil, you got to understand that when he went there and he got into the city and he found a place that it's no wonder that he did not eat and he did not drink for three days. (laughs) I mean, his mind would have just been racing with all of the things that he had heard. And of course, as we see here, he was blind with his eyes. But I think for the first time in his life, he was seeing clearly the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that is so amazing that when someone is confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and their eyes are opened, amazing transformation can take place. And so that was the conviction of power that came into his life. But thirdly, today, I want you to see a calling for a purpose in our passage. A calling for a purpose. Like I said, he he was there in Damascus. He did not eat or drink for three days. I think he was definitely giving himself to thought and to prayer. I think he was able to now look at his entire life's education through the lens of Jesus Christ. <laughs> able to look at everything that he knew about the law and about the Old Testament and the history, the history of the Jewish people now through the eyes of the Messiah as Jesus Christ. And it was totally life-changing for him. But at the same time, imagine the joy of knowing Christ, but the agony of his sin. The joy of knowing now who he was and the agony of the persecution and the pain and the suffering that he had brought to so many people. But now we see God bring along some encouragement and clarify for Saul a little bit more about his purpose for him. And we see it in verse number 10 where it says, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is not the Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember from before. Remember, he's dead. (laughs) Okay, so different Ananias. Okay, good, just so you know. Named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias... And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. Now we're hearing about this Ananias for the very first time. This is the only place that he's mentioned. We see him a couple times back in Acts 22. He's re-mentioned as Paul, t- uh, Paul then tells his story. We don't know much about him. We believe, of course, we know he was a follower of Jesus in Damascus. In Acts 22, it tells us that he was uh, well-respected by the people there in Damascus. We don't know. Some people believe he was the pastor uh, at the church there. Uh, either way, he was an influential believer there uh, in Damascus. But what we notice is his response to the Lord when the Lord speaks to him. And again, a reminder to us how we should respond when God speaks to us. He says, I'm here. I'm ready. Show me, Lord. Tell me what it is that you want me to do. And then in verse number 11, God tells him, And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight. There was two roads that ran directly through the middle of Damascus, and one was called Straight. What do you know? The Straight Street. And so that's where he was. So he said, Go to the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and Ananias is like, wait a minute, that's me, and putting his hand on him, wait a minute, that's me, (laughs) that he might receive his sight. And I think there was a long pause at that moment (laughs) after God spoke to him. Wait, wait a second, Lord. Who? Who am I supposed to go see? Look at verse number 13. And Ananias answered, before he was like, I'm here, Lord, I'm ready to go. Now look at what he says. Uh, Lord, I have heard <laughs> by many of this man. <laughs> I heard about this guy and how much evil he hath done to thy saints. Interesting enough, this is the first time we see saints used for believers in, in the New Testament. He said, I've heard about the evil he's done to thy saints at Jerusalem. So he knew his reputation. And here 
He hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. So what we recognize here is that they knew he was coming. Now here's what's so great. Ananias was still there. He didn't take off in fear. He stayed in the city. So they knew what Saul was all about. And so he says to the Lord, uh, I heard about this guy and he could put me in prison and you want me to go and talk to him and put my hands on him and like, Lord, don't you know what this guy has done? Now, now to me, I totally feel him on that. Right? I, I know what he's saying. I cannot criticize his answer because oftentimes I doubt the calling of the Lord as well. Oftentimes we do. God speaks to us and we're like, eh, are you sure you know what you're talking about, Lord? Are you sure you want me to talk to that person? Are you sure you want me to make that wrong right? Are you sure you want me to apologize for that? Are you sure you want me to do? And we doubt what the Lord says. But what we see here is when we have doubts, the best place to take them is to the Lord. And that's what he does. He says, Lord, I don't know about this. So God responds in verse number 15. He says, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way. This is so cool. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias' uh, protest here to God was met with the statement that Saul was God's chosen vessel. He was someone who was going to be set apart for this moment to preach the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to preach to kings, and to preach to Israel. Now to me this is so ironic, isn't it? And I love this is how God works. The irony in this is that the most zealous Jew and the most anti-Gentile person would be the one chosen by God to take his word to the Gentiles, to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I mean, God has such a great sense of humor, doesn't he, when he chooses people to work. Later on in reflection, he said this. He said, for God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I think he was thinking about himself. Later, 1 Corinthians, he, he recognized God's unique way of bringing the gospel to people. And what I want us to notice is that God had a specific purpose for Saul, just as he has a specific purpose for us here today. And here's the great thing that we see here is that God can use you even though your past may not be perfect. I don't want us to miss out on that amazing truth. And I want you to do this with me this morning. I want you to think for a moment with me about your own life. And I want you to think about all of the insecurities and all of the excuses that you personally have that you tell God and say, God, this is a reason why I cannot be used. I just want you to take a second and think about it. Think of all the insecurities, all of the excuses that we give God, and I want you to put them all over here on this side of the room. Can you do that? Right here, okay? Just imagine, these are, these are your insecurities right here. Can you see them? Does it need a bigger box, maybe? My box is huge, it's right over here. All the insecurities. And then I want you to take those insecurities over here and all of those things, and I want you to compare them to this side over here, and I want you to compare them with the life of Saul, right over here. So I want you to take your insecurities and I want you to compare them with the life of Saul. Number one, murderer. Let's put that there at the top, right? Because that's the one we think about. Perse hater of Jesus Christ. Uh, imprisoned, beat, murdered, separated families, split up, uh, uh, split up homes. He thrived on the murder and imprisonment of Jesus' followers. Later on, he said this about himself. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul says, I am the worst one out of everybody. I take the cake when it comes to sin. And, and, and I want you to put over here and then I want you to compare 
your insecurities to his life. And I want you to go to your reasoning statements. And these are statements that we have, and they're generic, of course. You can probably apply it a little bit more specifically. But we say things like, it's too late for God to use me. It's too late. I have done too many things in my past. Therefore, I cannot be used by God anyway. I'm just thankful to be saved, and I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm just going to hang out over here because I've done a lot of bad things in my past. Things, even statements like this. I've served God a lot in the past, and right now I'm just going to chill for a while. I need to relax. I need to take it easy. We have so many things that we say and, and statements that we make. Uh, uh, I don't deserve to be used. I've heard that one before. I've thought that myself. I do not deserve for God to use me in any way. And then I want you to take all of those things again and I want you to compare it to Saul and compare it to his life. Because when we compare our reasoning with God's truth, we see the weakness of our arguments against God. When we take our reasoning and what we think is logical and I've done all of these things and therefore God can't use me and I've got this issue and I, I'm still struggling in this area and I have all of this and then we compare it with the truth of God which says that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, that he's given you a purpose. And think about Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now think about it. He's talking about the power. He raised him from the dead, okay? God raised Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 21, he says, To make you perfect, that means complete, that means mature, in every good work, why? To do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, of whom be glory forever and ever. See, what he's trying to show us here is that our weaknesses, our excuses, the things that we hold on to so much as a reason to not serve God, when you put it up against Saul and the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead and the life-giving uh, uh, power of his shed blood for you and dying on the cross for your sins, it doesn't even compare doesn't even compare and that's why I love our midweek study so much I'm going to give a shameless plug here for our Wednesday nights listen you're missing out if you are not here because what we are doing is we are talking about uh, how God's love and God's strength is everything that we need to rely on in order to live for him and, and that's maybe a simple way of putting it, but how it can help remove our thoughts of weaknesses, our thoughts of, of, uh, of insecurity and, 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 and discouragement and the things that we struggle with, how we can learn to trust in God and in his love and his strength and all of these attributes that he has in order to help us live the fulfilled life and continue on. We are often so held back by our own minds. <laughs> We're held back by our own discouragement. We're held back by our past rather than recognizing that, listen, your past, Jesus died and gave himself for that. He has forgiven you of that. And it's so you can move forward and on in new life. Man, for Saul, this was a direction-changing moment. Direction-changing. I'm sure he was super thankful to know the truth, but what I love about Saul is that he was already thinking about what he needed to change. What is the thing I need to do? What is the next direction for me? And God's purpose for Saul is that he would go and share the gospel. But I want to go back to Ananias for a minute. Because Ananias still has to go there. God just told him what to say. I always wonder what that conversation was like with his wife. Hey, I'm going to go out for a few minutes. Where are you going? I just got to go see somebody. Well, who? Ananias. Who are you going to see? Eh, it's not that big of a deal. Ananias, you're making me uncomfortable. Who are you going to see? Ah, uh, just this guy named uh, Tarsus. Who? Uh, uh, what, his name's Tarsus? No. Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus? <laughs> Ananias. 
Haven't you heard about Saul? Yes, yes, honey, I know. But God told me that I've got to go and I've got to go talk to him. Well, okay. See if you can find some toilet paper while you're out. Right? <laughs> it's all sold out. <laughs> Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, don't miss this, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately, right then, there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith right away and arose and was baptized. Now, Ananias' actions here fulfilled two purposes. First of all, he came to him in a prophetic role. He told him what he was to be doing. And second of all, I think it was a visit of personal encouragement to, to Saul. If you can imagine being Saul again in the dark, blind for three days, processing everything that he had been heard, that he had heard, and then not only processing it, but then the guilt of what he had done. And to have this man, Ananias, come into this room and to put his hands on him and to call him brother. Man, that immediately spoke of forgiveness right there. That somebody that he was coming to kill, someone he was coming to take, to have that, that connection. And he says, brother. Man, it would have been incredible. Think about it. Ananias probably knew some young woman who had been widowed by Saul. Ananias probably knew families in his congregation that had taken off and left when they heard that he was coming. Ananias may have had other people in his life that had been the victims of Saul's attacks. But we see Ananias, whose name means God is gracious, coming to him and saying, Brother Saul. And it was because they were brothers in Christ and because they were part now of the family of God. He told Saul that Jesus had sent him and he told, filled him in on what Jesus had said. And of course it says at that point, uh, when he got up, his, his blindness went away from him. He received the Holy Ghost and then he was baptized. Again, we see that picture, salvation, spirit, baptism. Again, we know the book of Acts is, is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. But he, as he baptized him there, the, and I don't want to miss that. Sometimes we just look at it and it's like, oh, he was baptized, great, very cool. But that for him, again, as a leader in Judaism, for him to be baptized, uh, be baptized, it was like the cutting off from unbelieving Israel and his connection then to these followers of Jesus Christ. This is a huge thing for him. I want to just read a few verses in closing today as we kind of see the story continued. And I love this because Saul didn't waste any time. Look at verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the Philistines which were at Damascus, uh, sorry, disciples, not Philistines, <laughs> disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Verse number 21. Don't you, well, let's go back. I want you to look at it again. He preached Christ in the synagogue that what? He is the son of God. Amazing. Just like that. He gets up. He's like, I've got to go and preach Jesus Christ. He already had all the knowledge. The final piece of the puzzle had just been put into place for him. So he went out and he preached that he is the son of God. And then in verse 21, and all that heard him were amazed and said, is this not he that destroyed them, which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very 
Christ. He did not waste any time at all. I love that. He didn't waste any time. And by the way, neither should we when it comes to sharing our faith. So often we wait for that perfect moment. He's like, I'm just going to go and I'm just going to start telling people what's up. (laughs) It's all come together for me. I know who he is. I know that he is the son of God and I know he is my savior. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to start preaching the gospel. And this begins the public ministry of Saul, later who would become Paul the Apostle. And it's such a transformational story for us today. What a powerful testimony of what God can do in an individual's life. And I want to remind you of this today. If you didn't get it yet, get this, that if God can use a person like Saul to change the world, God can most certainly use you. Most certainly use you. So often we're insecure. So often we struggle. We say, man, I'm thankful to be saved, but that's You know, anything else, God just couldn't use me. God couldn't use my past. God couldn't use the broken vessel that I am. But our God is a God who puts broken vessels back together. And he makes them whole. He makes them whole. That great picture in the Old Testament of of the potter and the clay and how he continually is forming it into making it into something new that's right and perfect. And you may have a lot of cracks in your life. (laughs) You may have a lot of issues. You may have a lot of problems in your past. You may have a lot of sin in your past. But it doesn't change the power of God. There is no sin, there is no past that is greater than the love of Jesus Christ and the transformation power of him in your life. And we see that here in the story of Saul. And I'm so looking forward to moving it. Paul's one of my favorite characters in in the Bible. I love preaching about him. But this transformational moment for him is so key for us to remember today because God's mercy and God's love can go a whole lot further than mine can. So much farther than mine can. And God can bring about a change in anyone. And I've said this before, but we could have you stand up all over this room and tell about the change that Christ has brought in your life. Some of you could stand up and and you would say some things that would shock other people in this room. And they'd be like... But you know what? That's the power of God. It's the power of God. And God is still in the business of changing people and making us vessels to be used by Him. I hope that you're encouraged today with that thought. If God can bring about a change in someone like Saul, He can bring about a change in anyone. That's us. And by the way, that's your unsaved family. That's your coworker that needs Christ so desperately that just keeps making terrible decisions. (laughs) That person who just is struggling. A person who feels that they don't need God. We need to be praying for them and also believe that God can make a difference. Never stop praying for those who seem so calloused. Those that seem so antagonistic to the gospel. They might be the very ones that God will use in an amazing way. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook. Or follow us on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.